We are continuing our time in the Great Awakening. We've talked about the Wesley brothers, Jonathan Edwards, and today we're talking about George Whitfield. Welcome back to Church History. I'm your host, Laura Lee Siemens. I hope you had a good weekend celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are continuing our study in the Great Awakening. If you're just listening to this episode, I would recommend going back and listening to the episodes on the Wesley Brothers and Jonathan Edwards. Like our episode with Jonathan Edwards, our episode today on the life of George Whitfield will deal with the issue of slavery. There are people who want to put George Whitfield in the category of bad guy of history because of some of the things in his life. I'm going to tell you the history of who George was, and in the end, I will share my personal thoughts that I had on the issue after doing the research. So, here is a life of George Whitfield. Travel back to 1714. Enter the Bell Inn on South Great Street in Gloucester, England. It's December, and Elizabeth Whitfield is giving birth to a baby boy. Her husband Thomas is in the next room waiting to hear the news of the birth. George was born that night. He was the final child of the couple. He had four brothers and two sisters. George enjoyed growing up in the inn. At a young age, though, he began stealing. Now, to make his stealing not seem so bad, he would give some of the money he stole to the poor people in the community. And when he stole from stores, he would also steal some books about the Bible. Then George got sick. His sickness affected his eyesight, and although he recovered, It left him with poor eyesight and he would squint for the rest of his life. Then, in 1716, at age 8, George's life was turned upside down. His father died. And his mother, understanding that it was almost impossible to be a single mother during this time period, rushed into another marriage. She married a man named Longden. He married her because he wanted the inn. He had no love for Elizabeth or her eight children. He treated the children like slaves. He abused Elizabeth, and he ran the inn into the ground. In the will of his father, Thomas Whitfield, the children were supposed to have the inn, and the children were supposed to be running it when they turned 14. But Longden refused to give control to the children, and he stole the inn for himself. As an interesting side note, during this time was a time of pirates, and in 1718, Blackbeard the pirate was beheaded. This time of pirates is important because as an adult, George Whitfield would spend a lot of time traveling the oceans. In 1726, George was enrolled at St. Mary Decrypt Grammar School. At school, George found a way to get a break from his family problems. He found that he had a passion and talent for acting in the theater. He loved to act, and he joined acting clubs. He always got the starring role. His school started writing plays made specifically for him so he could star in them. When the city council came to the school to do inspections for the school, the principal had Whitfield give speeches to the council on behalf of his school. So while at school George was doing great, family was different. In 1728, his mother left the marriage, and being the youngest, he went to live with his mother. The inn was poorly run, and soon it was closed. There was no money for school, and George's destiny seemed helpless. School looked impossible, 
family life was impossible, and even politics of the day were a mess. That year, George II became king. George's mother, Elizabeth, knew he was gifted and he needed to go to school. She asked him if he'd be willing to go to school as a servant. He would be allowed to take classes while he was working as a servant for wealthy students. George agreed. He would humble himself and go as a servant. He was assigned a few students and it was his job to make sure their shoes were shined, rooms were cleaned, and any other job they asked him to do. In 1732, George enters Oxford University as a servant. Around the same time, in the Americas, Ben Franklin was starting the Pennsylvania Gazette. Ben Franklin and George Whitfield would end up meeting later in life, and that printing press of the Pennsylvania Gazette would be used to print his messages. But that idea seemed impossible at this point in his life. He was a servant in a school. He wasn't even allowed to talk to the other students, especially upperclassmen. However, he met an older student that changed his life. The Wesley brothers met him. They saw how hard he was studying the Bible. In 1733, they invited him to breakfast. And at breakfast, they began to talk to him. And they saw that he really wanted to please God. The Wesley brothers decided to take George under their wings. And he joined their holy club. That same year, when the Wesley brothers invited George for breakfast, England was settling a brand new colony called Georgia. It would become the life mission of Whitfield, but not for a few years. For now, he was enjoying being part of the Holy Club. The Holy Club were trying to earn their salvation by following very detailed methods. They would eventually be the Methodists. The group raised money and then started to school for children of prisoners. They visited prisons and they preached to the men in the prison and they studied their Bible for hours a day. George was very involved in the missions of the Holy Club. One day, he read the book The Life of God in the Soul of Man by Henry Scrugel. Henry had written a letter to give his friend counsel. The friend passed the letter on to others for encouragement, and when the bishop saw it and read the letter, he had it printed as a book. After reading the book, George prayed, Lord, if I'm not a Christian, for Jesus Christ's sake, Show me the way. He started working harder to earn his salvation. He started only eating bread. He would pray outside in the cold until his hands turned to blue. He gave up the holy club because those were his friends and he wanted to give up his friends. So he was lonely, isolated, malnourished, and suffering from injuries he had done to his body. He became so sick that he could not leave his bed. While sick, he read the book again. This book changed him, and he saw all his sacrifices were for nothing. Jesus had already made the sacrifice. At this point, George put his faith in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection alone for salvation, and he no longer believed he had to work to earn his salvation. This was in 1735. Now, he did continue to be very method-oriented in his study of the Bible, But the difference was, now he didn't see these methods as a way to earn his salvation. He started taking better care of his body, and his Bible time would go something like this. He would read the Bible verses first in English, then in Greek, and then he would pray over each line of the Bible. He joined the Holy Club again, and they did a lot of work with prisoners, especially those in debtor's prison. The government saw a problem with the debtor's prisons being overcrowded. They offered the prisoners a way to leave the prison, 
if they agreed to help settle the new colony they were creating in the Americas. So, ships full of prisoners were sent to Georgia. The colony was running into problems, and the Wesley brothers were asked to travel to Georgia to preach and start churches in the area. With the Wesley brothers gone, it was left to George to lead the Holy Club. George was not able to continue school because he didn't have the money he needed. However, he started speaking in open-air areas, and everyone loved it. People all told him that he needed to be a preacher. George began to pray. He asked God, If I am to be a preacher, give me the funds for school. A few days later, a man showed up and gave him a horse. He now had the ability to travel to school. Then people just started stopping by his home, giving him money. And in a short time, he had all the money he needed to finish school. And with the horse, he had a way to get to school. The Wesley brothers were still in Georgia doing missions work, and they were running into a lot of problems. We talked about this in our episode on the brothers. They rode to George Whitfield and asked him for help. He agreed to go to Georgia to help, but he had to get the funds to go first, and that would take a year. During this year, he was ordained as a deacon in the Anglican Church, and he was given the opportunity to preach in London. His gift of theater, paired with his passion for Jesus Christ, was a perfect combination. Immediately, he was drawing massive crowds. Tens of thousands of people crowded into large cathedrals to hear him preach. One day, a man named David Garrick, who was then the most famous actor in Britain, came to hear this man preach. And this is what he said. I would give a hundred guinea if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. Imagine you're in the service listening to the sermon. The large cathedral is completely packed. There are probably thousands of people in the building. You're sitting on hard wooden pews. But the uncomfortable sitting doesn't matter. You are on the edge of your seat listening to Mr. Whitfield speak. He is preaching about eternity. Suddenly, he stops. He looks around. You look to see what is he looking at. There's silence. Suddenly, he says, Hark! Methinks I hear the saints chanting their everlasting hallelujahs and spending an eternal day in echoing forth triumphant songs of joy. And do you not long, my brethren, to join this heavenly choir? You can almost hear the angelic choir yourself, and you can't wait to join them in heaven. That was a real part of a real sermon that George preached. After a year, it was finally time to go to Georgia. The day he got on the ship to go to Georgia, the Wesley brothers arrived back in London. George traveled on the ship, the Whitaker. Right away, he started saying prayers each morning. The captain was annoyed by his prayers. People were annoyed, and they were rude and disrespectful. But George didn't mind, and he started visiting the people, especially those who were sick. The prayer meetings began to grow. He continued to visit the sick, and he gave some of his personal items to help them. Now, on this ship were a group of soldiers. They were on board going to Georgia to prepare for attacks by Spanish. George started a class for the soldiers. At first, just a few came, but soon they all were coming. Then the captain asked him if he would speak to the crew. So he started a Bible study for the crew. He also started a Bible class for women. The captain started setting up a church for him on Sundays with planks of wood set like pews. Soon, the captain and the crew and most of the passengers 
had become Christians. The ship landed at a halfway point, and other ships had crews that asked to be put on his ship. Everyone wanted to be on Whitfield's ship. They headed back out, but that Sunday it was a little different. They set up the church on the deck, but the other boats pulled up next to their boat so they could hear the sermons, and Whitfield preached to his ship, plus more ships that had gathered around them. Finally, in 1738, he landed in the Americas, and he started his ministry in Georgia. The ministry of the Wesley brothers had been a disaster. They left in shame, and the people of Georgia were not interested in hearing what Whitfield had to say. They assumed he would be just the same as the brothers. But a few did come to hear him speak, and soon more came, and then crowds. The people loved him. In fact, they built him a house to make sure he wouldn't leave. And every single week, the church was completely packed. George began to visit people in Georgia. The colony had its problems. Remember, the families were people who had come as a way to escape debtor's prison. The time had been hard. Diseases, bad weather, poor crops had led to many deaths. Mothers and fathers had died. And the streets were full of little children with no one to care for them. George saw himself as the eight-year-old little boy who lost his father. His heart was broken for the little children. He wanted to take every single one of them into his home, but that would cost money. There was only one solution. He would build an orphanage. As he tried to raise money for an orphanage, he ran into a problem. Georgia was mostly people who had come out of debtor's prison. There was no money to raise for an orphanage. So he decided to go back to London to raise the money he needed. This would mean leaving the orphans and his new church. It was hard, but he returned to London. But when he got to London, he ran into a big problem. While he was gone, he was unaware that a campaign to discredit him was going on. The Church of England didn't like that he'd been in contact with and was even siding with people who were opposing the church. And while he was away, he had written letters to his friends, and the letters had been published. George never planned on this being published work. He had been a little harsh when talking about certain people, and had believed the writings were only to be read by his friends, not published. The published letters were sold and bought quickly. In fact, they had to be published multiple times because they were sold out. But people in power in the churches were angry about some of the things he had written. So, as he arrived in London, he was faced with controversy. He was able to speak in the churches but he was also there to raise money. So he did that, and he did it well. The church became angry again because people were giving him money instead of giving money to the church. Also, the crowds were so big, they couldn't even fit inside the massive cathedrals of London. During his time away in the Americas, the Wesley brothers had come to understand salvation, and the old friends reunited again to preach. Whitfield started preaching outdoors so more people would come. During this time, you had to pay for a family pew. If you didn't pay, then your family could not attend church. The cost of the pews were based on how close they were to the front. This meant the poorest people had to sit in the back or not attend church at all. The thing with open-air services is that anybody could come, including the poor, and he would be able to preach whatever he wanted. He decided to go to a place called Kingswood. This was an area of miners. He set up a pulpit in a field next to the mine, and he called the miners to come out of the mine and hear him preach. There was no church in that area. 
and the men came out of the mines to hear him. In a journal, someone wrote that when they looked at the dirty faces of the miners listening to him preach, they were streaked with tears. Most of the miners became Christians, and a church was founded right there at the mine. Soon, the church had up to 20,000 people meeting out in the open. It was finally time to head back to the Americas, and George Whitfield left the Wesley brothers in charge of his outdoor services. He returned to the Americas, but he traveled to New York and Philadelphia to raise more money from those churches. One day, Benjamin Franklin decided to attend the service where he was speaking. He disagreed with George Whitfield's ideas of the orphanage. He thought the orphans should simply be sent to orphanages that were in other colonies, and he said he would not give any money. But listening to George Whitfield preach changed Benjamin Franklin's mind, and he ended up giving all of the money that he had with him. This is what happened every time George spoke. Everyone was giving him money for the orphanage. One day, he was traveling with another preacher, and he came across a poor woman asking for money. George gave her five sovereigns. The other preacher was upset with him. That money is for your ministry, for the orphans. Why would you give part of the money we raised to this random woman? As they continued down the road, suddenly, a robber came out and attacked them. He held them at gunpoint, and they had to give all of their money to this thief. As they continued along their journey, George said he was glad he had given the poor woman the money that he had. He wished he had given her more, because he was glad she had it instead of the thief. The men continued on the path, and suddenly they heard the sound of a horse behind them. The thief had returned. He stopped them and demanded that George give him his coat as well. George took his coat off and handed it to the thief. George told the thief that he needed a coat because it was really cold. So the thief took off his own worn-out coat and gave it to George. The two men continued on their way. They were nearing the home they were traveling to. Suddenly they heard the thief returning for the third time. The two preachers rushed to the home and escaped the third robbery. Once inside the warm house, George took off the coat the thief had given them, and he noticed that one side of the coat was heavier than the other side. He reached into the side pocket and found 100 sovereigns. He had all the money the thief had stolen that day, so he gave away five sovereigns and he received in return 100 sovereigns. In 1739, George Whitfield heard about a friend and fellow preacher named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan was really struggling. His town had a series of suicides. The suicides seemed to be related to Edwards' preaching on the sovereignty of God. People believed they were not part of the elect and therefore doomed. In a helpless state, they committed suicide and the town was blaming Edwards. George traveled to the town to support Edwards. He took the pulpit for a time while Edwards traveled to other areas to preach. During this time, Benjamin Franklin started printing tracts written by George Whitfield. He had grown to really respect him. The two men had a very good relationship. In 1735, the colony of Georgia outlawed slavery. Clearly, at this point, the anti-slavery movement was growing and people were proving that they were opposed to it. So Georgia, a colony made from prisoners, outlawed slavery. Finally, in 1740, he returned to Georgia and bought land for his orphanage and started the construction. He was happy to return to Georgia. His orphanage was finally built. He soon learned, though, that it would cost even more money than he thought. So he began traveling to other colonies, 
to let them know about the problems that were in Georgia. In 1740, Whitfield was touring the colonies in the South, and he saw public beatings of slaves. And when he visited plantations of families from the church, he was shocked to see cruel treatments of the slaves. He was outraged by what he saw. He wrote a pamphlet and he had it published. It was called An Open Letter to the Planters of South Carolina, Virginia, and Maryland. In this letter, he wrote, I think God has a quarrel with you for your abuse of and cruelty to the poor Negroes. Your dogs are caressed and fondled at your tables, but your slaves, who are frequently styled dogs or beasts, have not an equal privilege. The letter blasted the church for its refusal to stand for the slave. He was ashamed of them. He said the treatment was simply evil. He ended the letter by saying the worst thing they had done was to keep the gospel from the slave. They had been banned from the church. George said the worst thing they had done was not only destroy the bodies of the slave, but the soul as well. He told them they had blood on their hands. He also said that had they given the gospel to the slaves, they would not have the problems that they had. He also did not write that slavery itself was wrong. The fact that he didn't state a moral judgment on the idea of slavery itself, or that he seemed to imply that one of the reasons to preach the gospel to the slaves was to make it easier to control them, made the letter controversial for historians. However, at the time, it was seen as a letter that was in favor of the better treatment of slaves. In fact, the slaves of the time saw George as their ally. One of Whitfield's friends was a preacher named Hollow Harris. Hollow Harris believed that marriage would distract him. However, he found himself falling in love with a woman named Elizabeth. This woman also was in love with Harris. However, Harris didn't want to be distracted. He thought if he convinced Elizabeth to marry George, then he would not be tempted by her anymore. In 1741, George returned to England. Once again, he was shocked to find out that there had been an attack on him while he was gone. This time, the attack came from his friends, the Wesley brothers. The Wesley brothers did not follow Calvinism. They believed that everyone had the choice to be saved. They believed that the teachings of both George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were dangerous and false. People would see George Whitfield walking in town, and they would literally put their fingers in their ears and run by him. It was shocking. The Wesley brothers were also part of the movement to abolish slavery, and George Whitfield believed that the idea of outlawing slavery was impossible, that it could never be done, that if you wanted to help the slave, the best thing to do was to change the hearts and minds of the slave owner so that the slave would be treated well, and that the gospel would be preached, and the churches would have both slave and free worshipping together. He believed that was a solution. So the Wesley brothers disagreed with him on both of these counts, and the disagreement was so horrible that George Whitfield was no longer welcome in the open-air services that he had started. It was a very difficult and draining time for George. He was lonely and began to think that perhaps he needed a wife. And that is when Hollow Harris introduced him to Elizabeth. In November 1741, George and Elizabeth agreed to be married. However, they were never in love, and it was a sad marriage. In 1742, George started traveling again. He went to parts of England and Scotland. This was the same year that the Handel's Messiah was first performed, and we're going to cover that in our next episode. The couple had four miscarriages, and then they finally gave birth to a child. However, he died shortly after his birth. 
1744, George had to bury his one and only child, his four-month-old son named John. George and Elizabeth arrived in the Americas that same year. At this point, George was starting to show that his throat and lungs were suffering. The preaching to large crowds was starting to take the toll on this man, yet he continued to travel in the Americas and preach. From 1745 to 1751, there was another huge revival. Thousands were getting saved. People were confessing their sins, repenting, and turning to a new way of life. Things were changing in America. However, George did not have a happy marriage. George did not think Elizabeth was a good wife. She didn't travel with him, and the people in the churches didn't really take to her either. In August of 1778, Elizabeth got a fever and died. A year before the death of his wife, the most controversial part of his life took place. George Whitfield felt that Georgia was never going to be a prosperous colony. He thought the colony was going to continue to decline. He also saw in his travels the work ethics of the black community. He believed if he was allowed to have slaves in Georgia, he would be able to have them work at his orphanage. He believed that they would make the orphanage better because they had such strong work ethics. However, slavery was banned in Georgia. In one of the letters, he wrote, Had Negroes been allowed to live in Georgia, I should now have had sufficiency to support a great many orphans, without expanding above half the sum that had been laid out. There were two reasons he pushed for slaves to be allowed in Georgia. One, he thought it would save his orphanage. But two, he also thought it would be a way for him to bring some of the slaves that were being treated poorly to his orphanage, where they could be treated with dignity and have the opportunity to hear the gospel. In 1751, Georgia did allow slavery. George Whitfield then had black children who had been orphaned or separated by slavery brought to his orphanage to be cared for. While we now know, looking back, that having slavery in Georgia would turn out to be very bad, at the time, George Whitfield was seen as a defender of the rights of black people. But he did not ever in his lifetime say that he believed slavery should be outlawed. Like Jonathan Edwards, he believed that since God was sovereign and slavery was in every country and had never been illegal, that it must have been ordained by God. He also thought that George being opened so he could have slaves was an answer to his prayers. I'm going to give my thoughts on this at the end of the episode. In 1751, Lady Huntington appointed Wheatfield as her personal chaplain. The money from this made for the first time the orphanage able to run smoothly. After his death, he left the orphanage, as well as 4,000 acres of land and 50 black slaves that he owned, to Lady Huntington. Whitfield left his orphanage in the hands of people who were capable of running it and did another large travel. He went to England, Wales, Ireland, and Scotland. In 1752, he visited Georgia again to see his orphanage. He found the orphanage once again in extreme financial troubles, and he had to rush back to England to raise more money. This time, when he was in England, he met with the Wesley brothers, and they came to an agreement. While they still had disagreements about theology, they remained friends for the rest of his life from this point on. Once he had enough money, he returned to the orphanage again. In September of 1754, the College of New Jersey gave him an honorary MA degree. The College of New Jersey at this point had Jonathan Edwards' son-in-law running the school. The school would later be called Princeton. In 1755, war broke out in the Americas. 
the French-Indian War, and a young general named George Washington led the British forces to fight in the battle. We will cover George Washington in another episode. From 1754 to 1769, for those 15 years, he would travel to Edinburgh, London, the colonies, back to London, Bristol, Edinburgh again, Dublin, Glasgow, Wales, and Holland, then back to the colonies, to New York, Boston, and then again Georgia. During this time, Indian reservations were being created. The first one was created in 1758. Then in March of 1770, there was a fight between a group of colonists and one British soldier. The fight turned into a deadly riot. This is known today as the Boston Massacre and the start of the movement towards the War of Independence. September 29, 1770, George was finishing a long day. He was feeling exceptionally tired and his lungs were hurting. He headed up the stairs to go to bed. But then he heard the crowds had gathered to hear him preach outside of his home. He had them come into his home and by the windows and there on the stairs he preached a message of God's love and salvation. When he'd finished, he went up the stairs to his bed. Very tired, he laid down to sleep and woke in the presence of God. 6,000 people gathered for his funeral. The black community who had saw him as a fighter for their rights were heartbroken to hear of his passing. Many had come to Christ through his preaching, and they believed he saw their plight and wanted to help them. One black woman named Phyllis had become a personal friend of George, and she wrote a poem for his funeral. Hail, happy saint, on thine immortal throne, possessed of glory, life, and bliss unknown. We hear no more the music of thy tongue. Thy wanted audience ceased to throng, thy sermons in unequaled accents flowed, and every blossom with devoted glowed. Thou didst in strains of eloquence refined, inflamed the heart and captivate the mind. Unhappy, we the setting sun deplore, so glorious once, but ah, it shines no more. Behold the prophet in his towering flight, he leaves the earth for heaven's unmeasured height. The worlds unknown receive him from our sight. Where Whitfield's wings with rapid course this way, and sails to Zion through vast seas of day. Thy prayers, great saint, and thine incense cries have pierced the bosom of thy native skies. Thou moon hast seen in all the stars of light how he has wrestled with God by night. He prayed that grace in every heart might dwell. He longed to see America excel. He changed its youth that every grace divine should have full luster in their conduct shine. That Savior, which his soul did first receive, the greatest gift that even a God can give, he freely offered to the numerous throng, that on his lips with listering pleasure hung. Take him, ye wretched, for your own good. Take him, ye starving sinners, for your food. Ye thirsty, come to this life-giving stream, Ye preachers, take him for your joyful theme. Take him, my dear Americans, he said. Be her complaints on his kind bosom laid. Take him, ye Africans, he longs for you. Impartial Savior is his title due. Washed in the fountain of redeeming blood, 
you shall be sons and kings and priests to God. But though arrested by the hand of death, Whitfield no more exerts his laboring breath. Yet let us view him in the eternal skies. Let every heart to his bright vision rise. While the tomb safe retains its sacred trust, till life divine readmits his dust. I'll put a link to the poem in the show notes. Phyllis Whitley's poems are still read today. She was a very gifted writer, and George Whitfield saw her gift and promoted her talents during his lifetime. Her poem for his funeral was published, and it made her famous. After that, more people wanted her poetry, and even today, you are able to buy books of her poetry. During his lifetime, he preached everywhere he could, and everywhere he preached, thousands gathered, and people gave their lives to God. Whole towns were changed when revival slept through. Revivals spread through Georgia, New York, Philadelphia, London, Wales, Holland, Dublin, Glasgow, Bristol, Ireland, Scotland. And with the revival was an awakening, an awakening to care for those that society had abandoned, the orphan, the poor, and the slave. The revival was real because after George left the town, the town continued to change under the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what were my thoughts on George Whitfield and slavery? Well, he was wrong about using slavery to help his orphanage financially. But there are two ways to look at injustice, the short term and the long term. History looks well at the Wesley brothers and other Christian men we're going to talk about in the future. These men ended to fight slavery, and they did win. But they didn't win in Whitfield's lifetime. He worked to help the living experiences of the slave in the day when he lived. He wanted the cruel practices to end. Perhaps both voices were needed. The voice to help the person who needed aid right away at that moment. And the voice to end the injustice permanently. Maybe God had called some for the short-term voice and some for the longer-term voice. We have to be willing to have these uncomfortable and difficult discussions. So many articles and books that I read on both Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield left out the issue of slavery, as if it didn't have anything to do with them. But when we don't allow ourselves to study all of history, then we lose the opportunity to learn from history. George Whitfield should have spoken out for the right of black men and women and also for the ending of slavery. And he should not have pushed to be allowed to bring slaves to his orphanage. Instead, he should have bought slaves, given them their freedom, and offered them a chance to live freely at his orphanage. George Whitfield's statues are already being taken down. When I read an article about why one of his statues was being taken down, it said, He wrote, Slave owners should Christianize their slaves to make them easier to control. He petitioned slavery to be brought back to Georgia, and he owned slaves. If that's all you got from his entire life, then you also missed the opportunity to learn lessons from history. Because how many times today do we do things that are not right if we think it'll help a greater cause? Yes, George Whitfield was wrong when he said if they Christianized their slaves, they would be easier to control. 
He was wrong when he petitioned Georgia to have slavery, and he was wrong when he owned slaves. But why was he wrong? And can you apply that to more than slavery? And what lesson can you learn from that? That's the important part of studying history. It's not our job as we study history to sit back and place judgments on people from the past who are already long dead and gone. The point of studying history is to look at today and to see what lessons history can teach us so that we can make today better, so we can make better, wiser choices today. Our job is not to judge history, but to learn from it. Next week, we're going to be talking about Handel's Messiah. It's a fantastic story. I know you're going to love it. In the meantime, if you'd like to read more blogs, listen to more podcasts, or watch some videos, check out my website, lauraleesiemens.com. 